Good afternoon. I am Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania. Joe Works in Elmire, New York is here. Chase Byers in Fishers, Indiana. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 17 today. However, uh, Joe wants to take us back to the last verse of chapter 16. Let's talk about a pronoun. Yes, because I am a grammaritician and so and, and those sorts of things. <laughs> okay. Uh, yep. the, the least qualified one to talk about anything grammar related. But it is interesting uh, as uh, at the end of the 16th chapter, we have uh, Luke, the, the writer of the book of Acts, um, going back to Acts 16 and in verse 10, we're introduced to the pronoun we. And so Luke joins. And when they reach Philippi, then it would appear that Luke remains in Philippi. And so beginning in chapter 17, then we switch to they, uh, Paul and his companions, Luke not included. It's kind of an interesting uh, note there. We'll pick back up with that later on in the book of Acts. Um, but it, I think it's just helpful to see how some of the evangelists uh, stayed in other places. They didn't all stay with Paul and so forth. There's, yeah. there's work to yeah. be done. And what, what you noted is the important thing. There are people who speculate beyond that. People get wondering, what was that? I'm not sure. Anyways. Sorry, guys. I, I did not turn something off. I am turning it off now. Where's that voice coming from? <laughs> um, okay. Uh, some people like to start thinking about where Luke was from, and some people would argue he was from Troas. Um, on the base, I think it's on the basis of the fact that here he stays in Philippi when Paul and the others leave. But some have argued that they think maybe he's from Philippi. I don't think we can know, but it's just interesting. Most important, it, it is, I think, helpful to pay attention as you go through the book of Acts when Luke says we or when he says they, letting you know when he's traveling with Paul and the others or when he is not. Which brings us to chapter 17 and Chase. Um, they're going to pass through Amphipolis and Apollonia, so why don't you uh start there and and maybe uh read through the first three verses after they passed through amphipolis and uh, apollonia they came to thessalonica where there was a jewish synagogue and as usual paul went into the synagogue and on three sabbath days reasoned with them with uh, from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the messiah to suffer and rise from the dead this jesus i am proclaiming to you is the messiah all right, great. So I'm going to stick a map on the screen here real quickly. We talked about um, Philippi when Paul was, when we were in Acts 16, we talked about Philippi and looked at uh, what that looked like. Why is, which, which, which slide am I wanting? I think I want that one right there. I'll try it and see if that works. Hmm. Okay, does the, does the map come on screen for you guys? Yes, it does. All right, so... So we had him in Philippi in chapter 16 up here, and then it says Amphipolis and Apollonia, and of course he's going to come to Thessalonica, and you see the dotted line here, and that's the Via Ignatia, the Ignatian Way, and so he's just traveling right along that route right there. And so uh, in these verses that Chase just read, Paul does what he usually does when he comes to a city, which is? It was a Mm -hmm. And he's there three Sabbath days, and it says reasoning with them from the scriptures, opening and alleging that it behooved the Christ to suffer and to rise again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom said he I proclaim unto you is the Christ. 
Uh, one of the things that that I think that people who've grown up going to church, sitting in Sunday Bible classes, and sometimes that they have trouble getting through their head is that Jesus Christ is not the name. It's not Jesus first name, Christ last name. Here he's talking about a Jesus that he's been telling them telling them about and reasoning with them based on the scriptures that this Jesus is the Christ. So what does Christ mean? Anointed. Anointed right? one. Sure. And it's the New Testament representation of the idea that we would see in the Old Testament, Messiah, which both of those terms mean anointed. And, and the reference here, I think, is especially to the idea of anointed to be king. Um, the Jews were expecting a Messiah, some t somebody who would come in from the line of David to be their king. And so he is opening the scriptures. And what scriptures would that have been? Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Psalm 16, uh, uh, going back to Psalm uh, maybe yeah, Genesis 12 and um, yeah, 2 Samuel 5, uh, 2 Samuel 7. Seven. Um, yeah. But it's going to be what we would call the Old Testament scriptures in general. Right. And he is yeah. showing from those that what had been said about the one who would come and said, so this Jesus is that person. He is the Christ. Uh, and those scriptures show that he would suffer and rise again from the dead. Um, that it's interesting that he mentions the scripture showing that Jesus would rise again from the dead because you don't have an explicit prophecy in the Old Testament that is obvious at first glance, such as when in Micah 5, 2, it talks about the one who would be ruler would come from Bethlehem. That's pretty straightforward. Uh, mm -hmm. there, but the, the Old Testament does prophesy the resurrection um what are some passages that that paul might have turned to to make that point i don't well in second samuel 7 he talks about the king that's going to reign forever um i don't know if that necessitates a resurrection as much as it does an eternal idea yeah. mm -hmm. um, but maybe maybe that one there's something yeah of course jesus himself alludes to his resurrection on the basis of what was seen in the book of jonah he says, Jonah mm -hmm. is blind. And, and you might not have gotten that if you're an Old Testament Jew and you read the, the book of Jonah shortly after Jonah's uh, adventure, you might not have realized that it was a prophecy. It was indicating that the Christ would be three days in Sheol and come back. But Jesus makes that connection. Yeah, Chase. But if the Hebrew. If the Hebrew writer can make the connection between Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22, I'd imagine Paul could have made that connection as well. Exactly. I think that's a powerful one. I, I like to start there often in an initial Bible study, Joe. Uh, I think helpful maybe to keep in mind uh, Acts 13, 33, and 34. Um, uh, you know, the argument is made for the resurrection from the dead from the second Psalm and from Isaiah 55. Mm -hmm. uh, those, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and the sixteenth psalm, um, and where you know Peter preached from that, as did Paul, um, and our only one under the okay. the Christ would not be left unto uh, Hades. And so, mm -hmm. all right, uh, very good. Now, um, anything else in the first three verses we need to notice? <clears throat> Maybe just a reminder, you know, the idea when they were in Philippi, they went to the riverside, no mention of a synagogue, um, uh, you know, the, the thought that there weren't as many Jews in Philippi seems to be emphasized here in 17.1, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. 
uh, seems sort of like a contrasting statement from where they had previously been. Mm -hmm. and, and then we get to verse four. And Joe, why don't you pick it up in verse four and take us down through verse five. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, gathering a mob, set all the sitting in uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. I see a contrast in verse four. Um, do you guys see a contrast as it describes the varying responses to Paul's work? Oh, yeah. Uh, some, some of whom were persuaded, some of the, the Jews in the synagogue, right? Mm -hmm. But the contrast, yeah, I think is, so. Contrast is what? A great multitude of the Greeks. Right. And, and then, of course, it's the Jews who are who stir up the trouble and, and Paul is going to have to leave. But you, you would get the impression just from this brief description of the beginning of the church in Thessalonica that it would have been largely made up of non-Jews, largely made up of Gentiles. And one of the things that's interesting to me is kind of comparing the letters that Paul writes to these churches after he establishes them with the historical record in Acts. And if we go over to 1 Thessalonians and chapter 1, um, Paul addresses the church in Thessalonica. Not, not long, really, after he had left there. And he says in verse 6, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. Uh, you can think about what we're about to read about, about the, the persecution of Paul. It says, With joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples or examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Um, and then he says, I'm going to skip down to verse 9. They themselves report concerning us, what manner of entering in we had unto you. These, these people in Macedonia and Achaia and other places, they know what the story is of how you received the gospel when we came and preached to you, how you turned unto God from idols to serve a living and true God. That's something he would say to the Gentiles who'd been pagans. And so you see the consistency between the picture in 1 Thessalonians and the picture in the book of Acts. All right, anything else there in those sections, of those, those verses back in Acts 17? Well, that certainly explains why the Jews became envious or jealous in verse 5. Um, you know, all this great following that of, of the devout Greeks, they're, they're losing them. And so very similar to what had happened to Jesus is happening to those who follow Jesus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, verse 6, Chase, you want to get us there and go down through verse 9? When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset, and after taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. I don't know, uh, you know, you can't put too much stock in this, but if you go to Thessalonica today, there is a house that they say is Jason's house. Now, they also say that in Ephesus, there's a house that was Mary's house, and, and it wasn't. In fact, it wasn't even a private residence, But um, and I didn't, I didn't get to see it, but just for what it's worth, there's a house over there they say is Jason's house. But um, you, you see the, the, we see this on occasion when the Jews who resist the gospel use the Gentiles to create problems 
for the believers. And you mentioned, Joe, in the case of Jesus, the, the Jews brought Jesus to Pilate, the Romans, to get them to do the dirty work. And you see that again here. Um, what else would you like to notice here? This phrase, the world, they, they that have turned the world upside down. That's an interesting phrase. Yeah, and the the truth is the world was upside down. They're turning it right side up. That's right. Um, but but that's the way that the world views the message of Jesus. It is contrary, countercultural. Uh, you know, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. The greatest and the servant of all. You know, they they are greatly contrasted, opposites even of the way that the world thinks. You know, and and we live in a time where we can sense that. But to those of you listening to this broadcast or webcast or podcast or whatever kind of cast it is, um, who are believers, especially those of you who've been believers for a long time and maybe have been around for several decades, I think there's a spirit uh, amongst some that we, we don't understand what's happening to the world around us because for so long, everybody, we just felt like we were on the same page with the world around us. Well, we never really were. but but you you may have lived a life kind of like I did in some places, which is a little bit exceptional throughout history. And that is where you may have lived amongst people who, even if they weren't truly Christians, they were at least believers in the word of God. And you may have come to think that that's the norm. And you may be feeling like, oh, no, everything's gone awry. Now everybody is against Christianity or against the values that we read in the Bible. It, it, it is discouraging sometimes. I shouldn't say discouraging, but it can be frustrating, certainly, to see what goes on in the world around us. But what we need to realize is what Joe just said. The world is upside down. And if we've lived through a time where we have not realized that, we may have been in kind of an exceptional situation. Uh, we need to be prepared to be different than the world. I think that's exactly right. And, and, and I also think that in previous decades, it was upside down. It was perhaps just masked or, or nicer. You know, mm -hmm. the, the ideas of adultery and fornication and uh, a lot of wickedness, it just seems to be more open now, uh, the, the immorality and, and so forth. But it was around in the past. It was maybe just, just put, had a different face to mm -hmm. it which could be equally dangerous, um, uh, I think, for us. So the the persecutions that they face in the first century, that's what people face in a lot of other countries right now. And as you said, we need to be prepared to uh, accept that distinction and, uh, and follow the Lord. Verse 10 says, The brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, so now he's going to veer off of the Via Ignatia, off of the Ignatian Way, and head a little bit more west. But while the, the route that they were traveling would have taken them a little bit more northerly west. Um, and they, they come again to the synagogue of the Jews. And then we have verse 11. Now, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, examining the scriptures daily whether these things were so. When he says these were more noble, who's he talking about? I think these Berean the people who are listening. Yeah. But specifically the Berean Jews. I don't think he's just saying Bereans in general were more noble than Thessalonians. I think he's talking specifically about the Jews that he encounters in Berea as opposed to the Jews in Thessalonica. Um, 
And the, the reason is they were willing to search the scriptures with all readiness of mind to see if what Paul was saying is true. Yeah. You know, I have a question that you might not even want to dig into, Jeff, but it is interesting. To what degree did they have the scriptures? I realized the synagogues that they were in would have had copies of Torah and the prophets. But I think whenever a, a Christian like us in 2023 reads verse 11, they examine the scriptures daily. I think about going home and opening up my own personal Bible and reading through it. Did they have something like that or what what did that look like for them, historically speaking? Yeah, I, I don't know that I know any more about that than you do. I don't have the impression that your average Jewish household had copies of the scriptures in their own home. Um, but, uh, you know, back in Acts chapter uh, 15, James had said in verse 21, Moses from generations of old hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Now, now here it does say um, that they were examining the scripture daily. So how were they doing that? Were they making a special trip to the synagogue? Um, I, I don't know how they were doing that. Um, but it, it is a blessing that we have as ready access as we do. Yeah, yeah I, I, I don't think we should assume that they locked the synagogue doors, you know, uh, uh, after their, their meeting on, uh, on the Sabbath. Um, this probably helps to explain why they were considered to be more noble-minded um, if they spent more than just one day a week at the at the church building, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, very good. Yeah. And then it says, many of them therefore believed also of the Greek women of honorable state and of men not a few. So here we have a, a much greater number, a proportion of Jews who become believers. But it's interesting that both in in Thessalonica and in Berea, it talks about the women. It talks about the women, the chief women, or the women of honorable estate. That's fascinating to me. Yeah, I actually hadn't caught that. I, I thought about the leading women in Thessalonica, and I'd seen the prominent Greek women in Berea, but I'd not paid attention to how close they were together in Acts 17. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. And then you, you get over to Paul's letters and when he starts singling people out and mentioning people who've been helpful to him or important in various congregations, women are prominently mentioned in those passages. And, you know, it's mm -hmm. certainly been my experience in the church here and in various congregations I've worked with. And I'm sure you guys have the same experience that you look at what gets done in a congregation. You look at all the the little things and all the things that people don't necessarily announce from the pulpit on Sunday, but all the things that are just done on a daily basis. And there are a lot of things that a lot of women do without which congregations would not function. Uh, I recently had occasion to make the observation here in the pulpit. There's some of us who are very visible. I'm in the pulpit most Sundays. Um, but as far as the function of the congregation, um, if if I weren't here or if some of those women weren't here, which would bring the congregation to a grinding halt quicker? <laughs> anyway. good, good observation. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 this ought to dispel much of the false notions today that, well, the Bible was written in a time where women were considered second class citizens right. and they didn't have status and, and so forth. And we find so much evidence, like what we're reading right now, in various other places. Mm -hmm. um, uh, women spoken of quite highly. 
you have Luke 8, the women that accompanied, that helped to, to support Jesus and uh, the apostles. Uh, you know, very integral part of the, the work. All right, Joe, why don't you take us from verse 13 down through verse 15. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Mm -hmm. Okay. Anything you want to note in that section in particular? How much distance is between Berea and Thessalonica, Jeff? About 50 miles. Uh, let's see if I can get so, a better idea. Let's see so here. fair to say that you, you have to be a pretty dedicated group of haters to go that far yeah. by foot uh, we, to we, run someone out. Yeah, and we saw that when Paul left uh, Antioch and came to Iconium and then Lystra, and the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came and, and stoned him at Lystra. All right, so it's a little less than, looks like it's a little less than 50 miles, um, but it's not much less than 50 miles. Um, we, might, we might put that into, uh, into perspective in thinking about the fact that Saul was willing to travel from Jerusalem to Damascus to, uh, to harm Christians. Um, and so little surprise to see the animosity and hatred and, and vitriol against um, uh, the preaching of, of Jesus, uh, that was, that was just prominent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Then we come to verse, uh, oh, Tim, we've got to get, uh, Tim. So let's just remind, remind ourselves, he leaves Saul. I can't talk. He leaves Silas and Timothy there, but he does ask them to catch up with him and, and, and he is escorted down South to Athens. And then we come to verse 16. Um, when you guys want to read, starting verse 16, and go as far as you think we need to go. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Um, I actually wouldn't mind stopping there just to kind of grab what he's doing because it breaks the mold, doesn't it, guys? Um, at first, um, in verse 16, he's in a city with a bunch of idols. I mean, it, it's overwhelmingly, it seems like now, a Gentile pagan area that he's in. Um, but he's still, there's a synagogue there. Jeff, did you go to the synagogue that, uh, that's been described here? I did not. Yeah. We were in Athens, but I don't remember seeing a synagogue there. But he's in there, and he's talking with the Jews um, that are in there. But uh, it's just amazing to think about Paul being in such a diverse place um, and also being in a place that that has so many Jews. I mean, it would feel like what I think we're surrounded with now, uh, with a lot of idolatry, but a lot of Christians at the same time. So I think it's good to see Paul in a place like this. But in verse 18, um, it says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. And some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Um, and I realize my translation is different there. What does your all say at the end of verse 18? Here says, ignorant show-off? Yeah. Uh, mine says, at the beginning, of, or in the middle of verse 18, it says, what does this babbler say? 
All right. Yeah. yeah. And then the, the marginal reference has the idea of a seed picker. Somebody yeah. just going around what picking does that up mean? scraps. Going around picking up scraps. Just the, you know, what whatever they hear, they're throwing together. And do either of you have any comments on Epicurean or Stoic philosophers? Because I always forget every time I get to this. <laughs> okay. okay. So no, Stoic and Epicurean. I don't. I'm not an expert on them, but just simplistically, we have an expression. We talk about certain desserts that are Epicurean delights. Have you ever heard that expression? You've not heard that expression? No, but I, I want to go out to eat yeah. with where you, wherever you go. That yeah. sounds good. The reason we have that expression is because the Epicureans philosophically thought they highly valued being very, um, very studied in how to properly delight oneself. Uh, they they did they were not. You, you, we don't think of the Epicureans as being just hedonists. We think of the Epicureans as being people who valued pleasure and and thought carefully about how to attain the greatest pleasure. And so, okay, pleasure's their God still, but that's the way they thought of it. And then the Stoics, on the other hand, we talk about a personality who's very Stoic. Personality, uh, if a guy is very Stoic, he doesn't laugh a lot, he doesn't cry a lot, he just kind of takes everything in stride. Well, philosophically, the Stoics had that kind of a bent. Um, you tried not to be affected by things around you in this world too much. And that's a very simplistic and probably somewhat um, maybe be not exactly right, but that's my basic take on, on these two. <clears throat> but they did represent philosophies of life, how to get the most out of life. And, um, and so here they are with their ideas. And then here comes a guy to town and he's talking about being resurrected from the dead to a whole new eternal life and holding up Jesus as, as the um, basis for that because Jesus was raised from the dead and they just think he's a nut. So there you go. So you're gonna- Well, I, I didn't finish reading the verse, I'm sorry. Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So, sorry, I didn't finish the verse. No, that's all right. I, I actually knew it said that. So, <laughs> oh, okay. <All> right. <laughs> so again, to emphasize, all of the sermons in the book of Acts get to the resurrection. Yeah. You know, that that is the the cornerstone. That's the that's the basis of the need to change is that Jesus was raised from the dead. And the fact that the gospel, in spite of opposition, took hold and spread and spread dramatically throughout all these regions tells you that in the first century, uh, with, with in less than 20, 25 years after Jesus' death, people all over were finding it credible that he'd been raised from the dead. And, and it basically... Well, and it's amazing to think about... In, sorry, in the place of Athens, a uh, port city, right, Jeff, where, I mean, people are coming yeah. and going and, yeah. you know, just all the different things that could have come through there. All that I'd imagine there were some pretty wild stories out there, probably a lot of them not true, that had come through. And yet this story of the resurrection of Jesus is going to captivate those people who have right. been saturated with so much falsehood. But the resurrection of Jesus has been so well documented and there are so many eyewitnesses to it, even at this point that it's able to impact people who have heard all kinds of outlandish things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's basically, and, yeah, go ahead, Joe. 
Well, no, I'm going to change gears a little bit. You can finish. I was just going to say it's basically three things. It's that, as you mentioned, there were eyewitnesses. Paul writes to the church at Corinth and says there were 500 people who saw it once, and most of those are still alive, meaning you can you can talk to them. Uh, then it's the miracles that Jesus that Jesus messengers, Paul and others, did validating themselves as credible witnesses because God must be with them that can do these miracles. And so if they say they saw Jesus alive from the dead, you've got to consider that. And then it's what he did in Thessalonica when he argued from the scriptures that the scriptures showed that the Christ would be raised from the dead. And so now we say this Jesus was raised from the dead. And and there you go. Okay, change 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 directions for us, Joe. Okay, without uh, knocking the wheels off of this thing. Uh, I just think it's helpful to also uh, consider the humanity of the, the text. Paul's by himself at this point and facing this extreme situation. You know, yeah, he's in the past, he's had Silas and Timothy and, and Luke and others with him at various times. Now Paul seems to be alone in Athens and all of these idols around, these people who are challenging him, perhaps making fun of him he is a great opportunity. But any of us that have been in a situation where you're by yourself in a foreign city and being challenged uh, with different religions, wow, that can be so intimidating. And Paul is no Superman. Uh, he's going to feel those emotions. And so we have some of his epistles where he says, pray for me that I might have boldness to speak. I could easily imagine this would be one of those times where Paul's hoping that people are, are praying for him. Maybe just an application for us when we know of good men that, that are going to, to difficult places and difficult circumstances, whether in the U.S. or, or elsewhere in the world, uh, there, there's a human aspect to all that's going on. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I, and I like point. to bring out that he is alone at this time because he's he'd been traveling with this company. Luke's no longer with him. Tyler, Silas and Timothy have been left behind uh, up in uh, up in Macedonia, uh, so that that's useful to note also. All right, um, verse nineteen. They took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, "May we know what this new teaching is, which is spoken by you? For you bring certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore." What these things mean. And then get verse 21. Let me hear it in you guys' translation. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. I think that's interesting. <laughs> um, all right. Now, I do want to do this real quickly. Uh, just a little bit of oh, wrong map. Let's see. Maybe, maybe that'll work if I get. Hmm, no, nope, you're seeing the wrong thing. Let me try this again. Okay. All right. Uh, well, I've lost it. So go ahead. Uh, any observations you want to make there? You ready to go on? No, I mean, it just, uh, I think that really captures our culture as well. I mean, our culture loves to grab onto something new and, and hear it out, even if it's a, it's a crazy idea. Um, and that, that can be a culture's, um, you know, that can be a good thing for a culture. It could also be a very bad thing for a culture. And um, Paul is going to capitalize on that as an opportunity to share with them this new thing that they've never heard about with Jesus. Yep. All right. Well, I was going, I was going to show you, um, I was going to show some. The Areopagus. Hmm. I'm sorry. 
of the Areopagus you said you were going to show I was. Us pictures of? I some pictures of the Areopagus, but I, uh, I'm not, I had it and then I lost it. Oh. And I'm not sure I'm going to get it back. It's a, it's a stadium, right? Just a big kind of like Coliseum. No, no, no. the Areopagus. All right. Let me, I will get it on screen here. I've got it coming back up. It'll just take me a second to get to the right slide. Um, and I'll show you the Areopagus slideshow, current slide. All right. Where are you guys? And I'll pull it up. So here we go. A window. Boom. And boom. There we go. Now it, it should be. Well, let's try it again. Da, da. There we go. You guys seeing the map? Okay, now? Boomer. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but you thought it was a stadium. Okay. It's there. Good work. Good work. All right. So they were they were up here in Berea, and then Paul is brought down here to Athens, and uh, so we zoom in on this area, and then we're going to zoom in on this little area right here, and you can see Berea up there, and Athens down here, and so we'll zoom in on this area right here, and here's Athens, and here's Corinth and Sincrea, and that's about 50 miles from Athens to to Corinth right there, and so here's uh, looking at Google Maps of the same area, and Athens is over here. And here is a view of the Acropolis, and that'd be the Parthenon up there on top of the Acropolis in Athens. There it is lit up at night. And uh, this is just a view of the ruins uh, in front of the Acropolis. And then as you look up toward it, and uh, here's some views uh, up on the Acropolis of various structures and a lot of temples, temples to various deities. Um, so Paul talks, Luke talks about all the, the altars and all the idols that Paul saw evidenced in Athens. Some of these were temples to multiple gods. Um, here is on top of the Areopagus. So this is a, an outcropping, a, just a rock, a hill um, that, that you can stand on and you look back to the Acropolis, the Acropolis back here, the Areopagus here. This is a drawing from a book from the 19th century, and it shows the Acropolis with these stairs going up it, and those stairs are still there. And I'm sorry, it shows the Areopagus with the stairs going up it, and the Acropolis back in the background. Today, right here, where these guys are standing and just above them, there's a large plaque on uh, set into the stone of the Areopagus, and uh, it has Paul's sermon that he's that we'll read in a bit that he preaches here in Acts 17 inscribed on it. So here it is looking from the Acropolis where the Parthenon is down to the Areopagus. That would be the Areopagus right there with people standing on it. And the thing is, if you're standing on the Acropolis, you can look up at the Parthenon and the Acropolis with various temples, not just the Parthenon, of various pagan de deities all up there. But you can also look downhill from the Areopagus, and you can see this temple over here, and just really all around the city, you see all these different evidences of, of idolatry. This is a pagan temple uh, that still stands down below the Areopagus. Uh, here is a stadium, and that is not the Areopagus. So, just to clear that up. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> all right. So, Thank now you. the Areopagus, the term Areopagus is used in a couple of senses. It's used both for the um, it's used both for the the rock itself, and then it's also used for the council that met on the rock. And sometimes you might be a little unclear. It might be a little uncertain when it 
when we read about something taking place in the Areopagus, does that mean it took place on that rock? Or does that mean it took place in the council, which might or might not have been meeting on that rock at that time? I, I don't know that I could prove it. I'm inclined to think that they took Paul to this rock. Um, and that's certainly the popular notion of, of what happened. And and so the, the word itself, Areopagus, Ares, uh, Greek god, right? Or Greek god. And, and yeah. so even even some irony in all of this as far as uh, going to this place named for this Greek god, and here he is teaching them about the one true living god. Yeah, Areopagus is hill of Ares. That's right. So, all right, good. And, and that's why the King James says Mars Hill. Um, okay. Um, and so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus in verse 22 and said... Um, and here's the beginning of the sermon. And we go, and I'll read a little bit. You men of Athens, in all things I perceive that you are very, mine says very religious. What does yours say? Same thing? Same. Right. Some translation says superstitious. The old um, King James, I think, said superstitious, right? Yeah. And I, I think that this is kind of a, a, a word that's kind of in between being religious and superstitious. It's kind of like superstitiously religious. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so... And then he says, uh, uh, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. I think, guys, am I correct in thinking that not just one, but a few altars from ancient times have been found with that sort of inscription on them? Is that right? Uh, that may be. I'm not sure. Well, anyway, yeah, they have found either. such inscriptions. And he says, what therefore you worship in ignorance, this I set forth unto you. I think that's kind of a... Uh, a brilliant way to begin. You guys have all these things that you worship, but you also acknowledge there's somebody you don't know out there. I'm going to tell you about the one you don't know about. And so there you go. Uh, verse 24, you guys want to pick it up and go through verse 28. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Several points of contrast here. Um, rather than being a God of just one thing, like the God of the sea or the God of the hills or whatever, he's talking about the God who's over everything and made everything. He says that the God he's telling about doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Their gods did, but then didn't the Jews have a God who had a temple made with hands back in Jerusalem? Yes. So what gives? The, well, remember when Solomon built the temple and in his prayer in 1 Kings 8, right? Uh, he acknowledged that, God, this represents your dwelling. When we pray in this place, then hear us in heaven. You know, he says that, that the heavens or even the heavens of heavens couldn't contain him. Right. How uh, much so it was representative. Power. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And th this God, I like in verse 25, this God is uh, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Our God is not like a bicycle that continues to go as long as you pedal it. And 
that's how a lot of these gods were. I mean, as long those gods that they served were alive, as long as anyone wanted to talk about them and build temples for them and make them relevant. But when people stopped doing that, those gods kind of went away. Not the God of the Bible, the God of the universe. Years ago, I remember it was at the Oriental Institute in Chicago, and there was a, a bird idol of a sort, and there was a hollow shaft running through the middle of it. Um, mm-hmm. They s- speculated that that was used by priests, and I can't remember if it was so you could put food in the mouth and it would disappear, or if it was so the voice could come up, but they would try to cause this bird to actually... Um, seem like a god and the appian way guys they had a video where they talked about uh some pagan uh city where they had the evidence of the hollow place under the place where the statue of the idol would be put do you remember that joe i do remember i can't i don't remember the details of it but i remember them showing it i don't either but the but but we do have evidence that the offerings would be brought to some of these gods and they would disappear and the idea was the god ate it well he didn't but if he did, you're having to feed your God, you know, that kind of thing. It's kind of like the cookies left out for Santa Claus, Santa Claus kind of thing. Um, so um, Paul says the God who is overall created, he doesn't need you to take care of him. He's the God who's over you and he made you. Um, and, you know, if you're going to have a God, it's good to have the God who made you rather than the God that you made. So. Amen. It's rather it's better to worship the creator rather than the creature, right? That's right. He quotes a poet here, and and top off the top of my head, I can't remember which poet this is. He's quoting. Do you guys remember? Epi- yeah, Epimenides. I don't know how you're pronouncing it. That's good enough. Yeah, that's you, right. That's right. You, you you guys will both probably pronounce it differently, like Apollonia or Apollonia. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah. you, know, you all you all can choose how you pronounce it. Okay, I, I pronounce that one differently every time. But anyway, this is a quote that that we know uh, other than just because Paul quotes it. And it was so it would have been a well-known line from this poet. Uh, we are also his offspring. And so Paul takes that line and he makes a point. If we're the offspring of God, we ought not think that the Godhead or deity is like gold or silver or stone graven by art and device. Man. If he made us, we shouldn't think of a God that we made as that God. So, right. And of course, the interesting thing about that quote, at least one version of it is that that quote is the ending of the quote in Titus chapter one and verse 12 by the same poet. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts and lazy gluttons. The the, the same poet that I can't pronounce his name um, is the author of both of those. And some would have it from the same paragraph of his poem um, uh, where he says they, they, fa- they fashioned a tomb uh, for thee, O high and holy one. The Cretans are always liars, uh, evil beasts, idle bellies, but thou art not dead. Thou abidest forever, for in thee we live and move and have our being. Interesting. So, no, I, I had uh, forgotten that was all in the same context there. So at, at least at least some uh, would, would have that to be the, the same. Um, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't there when he said it, but yeah. <laughs> 600 BC, by the way, is, is when Epimenides was. So this is a quote yeah. that's been around for 600 years by the time Paul quotes it here in Acts 17, right. a well-known quote. Uh, you know, 
uh, it would be fascinating to be able to go back there and just watch the people listening to Paul as he goes through this. He's saying some profound things, some shocking things, some provocative things, but appealing to their own culture and their own quote, quotations and in, in making his point. And then he says in verse 20, verse 30, the times of ignorance, therefore, God overlooked. And maybe we can talk about what that means. But now he commands men that they should all everywhere repent. Inasmuch as he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, whereof he has given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. And we come right back to it, the resurrection. And that's the assurance that Jesus is the one he's going to judge the world by. We're actually out of time, guys. You want to pick up next time and talk a little bit about the times of ignorance that God overlooked and what that means and then the commands yes. all everywhere repent? Yeah, and especially the reactions to this sermon, I want to yeah. break down. Yeah, so next time we'll begin with just a like a two-minute re refresher as to what the sermon was, and, and then we'll talk a little bit about the times of ignorance. All right, thank you for being with us, and we hope you'll join us again next week on Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time for Bible Quest.